But this is the final Sunday in uh, our Lenten series on Enough uh, and our final week in Lent as we prepare. But before we get into that, I, I've always promised you and assured you that my preaching doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, it doesn't happen absent from the experience of the world and the new cycle and the work that we do together. And so as I have often in the past, I, I just want to name the things that I, I carry with me in a heaviness of heart. This is a season where the songs are big and bold and celebratory of the coming King and yet we have these wounds that we bear as a country and as a people, that we've lost 26 lives in tornadoes in seven states this last week, that we lost three innocent children and three adults in a shooting in a Christian school in Tennessee. We pray for Covenant School, pray for its families, pray for one of the adults that was killed who was just a substitute teacher and there was probably another pattern in another universe where she wasn't even called into work that day. As a parent who sends my kids to school, I'm floored by the heartbreak and the idea that there might be a day where my beloved kid doesn't come home. So that's a wound I bear. That's a scar I have. So we pray for the brokenness of our world. The simple truth is, is that as you heard it in the voices of the kids as they sang this morning, as you heard it in the voices of the choir, this Palm Sunday experience is about a crowd who gathers around Jesus and they lift their hands and they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna is one of those words that we almost now treat like alleluia, a word of praise or thanksgiving, that it's just a, a worship utterance that we as a people use, but never lose church. The roots of Hosanna. It's a Hebrew phrase that says, pray, save us. The crowds that greet Jesus as he comes in Jerusalem are crying out for salvation, for protection. And so on a Sunday where my heart is heavy, I pray, Hosanna, save me. Let's pray together. Gracious and ever-loving God, we give this time over to you. We ask that you bless us, that you shape us that you help us to know your work and your purpose. May your spirit move among us that we might be able to say to the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, that they have been acceptable in your sight. The Lord who is our strength and the source of all salvation. Amen. So this is Lent's final week. We are coming into the final seven days. We are on the stretch of things here. It begins today with a celebration of Palm Sunday. We will hear how on that same day and into the week, Jesus transitions into a ministry of teaching about the kingdom of God. We'll take just a minute to touch on the upper room story on Thursday, the garden of Gethsemane and the cross of Good Friday, his suffering, his passion, his death, all around a theme in the season of enough where we say, I can't thank you enough. One last turn of phrase using enough playfully that helps us to describe our sense of God's outpouring of grace. If God is in fact enough for us, how can we possibly say, I thank you enough? But to do that, we begin with our Palm Sunday text. And spoiler alert, there aren't palms in this story. That comes from the Gospel of John, where people take the branches and the palms and they wave them in the streets. Here, in the Gospel of Luke, it is a more personal sacrifice. But let's look at it together. Chapter 19, it reads in this way. After Jesus had taught them these things, he went ahead, going to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, there you will find a colt or donkey tied there, which no one has ever ridden. 
untie that colt and bring it to me. And if anyone asks, why are you untying it? Say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as Jesus had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners rightfully asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and they put Jesus on it. And as they went along, people spread their cloaks, their coats, their personal items on the road before Jesus so that even the feet of that unridden donkey would not touch their profane ground. And when he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in a really loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed peace in heaven and on earth. Glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Rabbi, teacher, rebuke, silence your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The word of God for we, the people of God. Thanks be to God. I love this particular version of the story. I love that sense by which they come into this hope-filled sense of Hosanna, blessings and praises. But here's the trick to it. You know I'm a bit of a mischief guy, and so my favorite part is that Lord needs it turnabout there. Go and untie the colt and bring it to me. I'm going to make my triumphant entry, my journey into Jerusalem as a messianic figure. The first time I'm going to ride a donkey in the telling of Scripture is in this holy moment. Jesus has spent his entire teaching ministry walking from place to place, and it is now that he will embrace the symbolism of being the king of kings. He's going to ride in on a special critter. But the way that's going to happen is he's going to send two disciples down to go and get it and to bring it to him. And if anybody asks, just say the Lord needs it. Now, never in 24 years of ministry have I been so bold as to say, Bernard, I want you to go down to AutoNation on Magic Mountain Parkway take the keys to a Mustang, start it up, bring it back here. Let's just say they approach you and say, why are you taking our car? The pastor needs it. We'll see how it plays out. Call me for bail money. (laughs) There's a miracle tucked into this little story that the people let it happen. Maybe there are part of the crowds who then file in and follow behind, who begin to sing and shout the praises, who offer not palms from trees, but indeed their cloaks, their jackets from their personal life as a symbol of some small part of sacrifice that they're willing to make for this king, this Messiah in their midst. And that crowd offers a beautiful image of how folks respond to the work of Jesus. They come and they cry out, Hosanna. Pray, save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I have a confession to make, friends. It's good for the soul. It's terrible for the reputation. I crossed an item off my bucket list last night. 15-year-old Andy would be so excited and proud. I got to go to WrestleMania. (laughs) It was at SoFi Stadium down in Inglewood, my first time down in that beautiful space. And let me tell you this. 80,497 people makes a crowd. 
And the great thing about the drama of professional wrestling and all of the soap opera-ism for men that it is, is that you see in the reactions of these people, even in just the trading of the blows, the vaudevilleness of it all, that we will cheer for our heroes, that we will boo the villains, that we will let you know when we are disappointed at outcomes and we will stand on our feet and our cheer when we feel like we are entertained. So this crowd stands to its feet and says, finally, the Messiah we have been waiting for. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We hold on to that tension, knowing what's going to come in the trial experience. But in the midst of their, their, their outcry, their roar, and I can't even imagine trying to silence the 80,000 people at SoFi last night, but the Pharisees say, Jesus, silence your disciples. Get them to calm down. And Jesus gives a response that is an absolute favorite of mine. If they were silent, the stones would cry out. Our chancel choir sang about it. This sense that if they weren't going to give praise to God, creation itself is going to take up the refrain. They're doing what is right. This puts creation in good order. Let them sing and praise. I use that stones cry out image as a theological metaphor for those places in my life where I see, usually in the creative arts, but in intersections and conversations had, a place where God is trying to speak to me in an unexpected way. That I see a movie that has, for me, Jesus overtones in a way that you never would have expected. When I hear a song on, 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 on just secular radio that seems to talk about love and redemption in a way that I feel it being expressed from God, these are places where as I feel the Spirit bubbling up, I know that the stones are crying out. That they want me to hear the story of God's good work in my life and in my heart. And when I'm not praying about it, when I'm not praising about it, when I'm not preaching about it, there are times where God encourages the stones of the world to have me to listen to the great story that God wants to tell. So, first day of that last week, Jesus is having a pretty good one. And the very first thing he does with that crowd's energy is go right into the temple and overflip the tables of the money changers. He chases those guys around with a whip made of cords. He says, you have turned my father's house, which should be a house of prayer for all the nations, into a den of thieves. You have told these people that who they are and what they bring to God is insufficient, even in their practical gifts. Your turtle doves are not enough. Buy the official temple-sanctioned turtle doves. They're much better. Your heart's offering, your cry, your repentance aren't enough for God. You need to buy an official temple sacrificial lamb. And Jesus looks at that commerce as a substitute for divine relationship, and he is so upset about it that he turns the tables over. He rages against the machine. He is simply unsettled by what he sees now that he is finally in Jerusalem and he wants to make things right. And everybody who cheered the guy on Colt back, who thought, this is the messianic king we've been waiting for. This is the new David who's going to turn the world on its head, who's going to deliver us from the Romans, who's going to come clutching a sword and a sense of zealotry. No, it is a Jesus who wants to right the ship in their relationship with God and how they worship, and how they pray, and all of the teachings that Jesus offers at the temple that week are teachings again and again about the incongruence, how unusual and weird the kingdom of God is. 
that all of the things that we expect to be true about the people who are going to be blessed, who ought to be blessed, who ought to be cursed, who are going to suffer, that in fact, in God's network and in God's kingdom, it's never going to behave the way you want it to or will predict. Some of our most familiar teachings about how to be the body of Christ together come during this week of temple teaching. The kingdom of God is like a judge who sits on a throne and separates sheep from goats. We just preached on that one. These parables of the kingdom of God, and it is there that the challenge is found. To realize that Jesus is not going to meet their warrior expectations. He has not come to kick the tails of the Romans and to chase them out. His kingdom will, in fact, be something very different. And that challenge begins to take the crowds from the place of praise and adoration to a bit of confusion. There's a lull in the middle of Holy Week. And in that we get some of the most beautiful, sacred, intimate moments of Jesus' interaction with his God and with his disciples. On Thursday, they gather for the Passover meal. It begins with Jesus inviting them to the table by means of taking on the servant's role and the servant's heart, removing his, cult, his cloak and washing his disciples' feet. Then, as the meal is concluded, bread is broken, lives are shared, he offers to them and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for you, for forgiveness. And as he serves the eleven and Judas, this holy meal, this holy intersection of himself, we see this sense by which God's grace is full, is abundant. And it drives the question within me, can I thank you enough for these models, for these stories, for this grace in my life? We know that they sing a hymn and go out to the Mount of Olives, already named in our story, and it is there that Jesus will go and pray three times over a heart's cry. Lord, this sacrifice is a bitter cup, and if it can pass from me, let it. Let it. Because I know what's coming. Those crowds that sang, that cheered, that prayed, save me. The tone is quick to change. If you can take this cup for me, do. But as we will pray in the Lord's Prayer in just a matter of minutes in our communion liturgy, not my will, but thy will be done. This is your sacred time, O God. Jesus is betrayed in that garden with a kiss from Judas. He's taken into the hands of the authorities. He is beaten and he is taken to Pilate for a time of trial. Pilate asks him about topics like truth and his kingship. He convicts him of crimes, of trying to stir up the people, of claiming that he is God, of taking on the stirring up of the Sanhedrin and the temple leadership who want to see Jesus out of the way because of his dangerous teaching. And in that moment, Pilate walks Jesus out and stands before the same word, the crowd. Probably not 80,497 in a sellout crowd at SoFi. 
But a people who are so disappointed in the transition of the week that has unfolded, you have not been what we thought you would be, that when Pilate offers them the chance to have this king released to them, instead they say, give us Barabbas. What then should we do with Jesus, your king? And those of us that have been around the block know those crowds that were cheering the hero boo the heel. Crucify him. Crucify him. They offer capital punishment as the means by which to execute the judgment of the people and of Pilate. Jesus goes in obedience to the cross. He goes as a paschal lamb, the same as the Passover story, where it is the blood of the lamb that protects the innocent children of the Israelites. So too does it become the blood of Jesus that guarantees our innocence. It is a grace sufficient. Yes, it is enough. But beyond that, it is abundant and it is completely unexpected, this gift from Christ on the cross. It is the marvel of the Apostle Paul and all of the apostles in their early preaching that this one holy incarnate man and God would offer himself for us in a system of violence, in a system of oppression, and help us to know freedom from that pattern as an act of grace and forgiveness for us. And the stories that we will tell on Friday and the story that I will tell right now is about a Jesus whose offering in that moment, in his suffering, is one of forgiveness and redemption. When people are gambling over his clothes, Jesus looks at them and without even asking for that forgiveness, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Grace is abundant. When a thief who probably deserved his condemnation is hanging on the cross next to Jesus and his partner in crime is mocking Jesus, get down off the cross if you may, if you can. Stop. Can you not see that he is innocent and the very Son of God? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus offers grace, forgiveness, and redemption to a repentant thief in that moment. Today you will be with me in paradise. But the truth, church, is that the forgiveness and the redemption of the cross on that day on Golgotha is not just offered to those in the moment. It is offered to Andy and his vulnerability and to everyone in this room and everyone in this God's good creation. It is an activity that is enough and sufficient for you and for me to know that this love divine which extends beyond the pattern of our expectation or even our rational thought, is enough for us to be transformative no matter where our story has taken us or no matter where our journey will go. That's why I ask the question, I can thank you enough? Can I? Is that even possible? Can I put together enough thank you notes, thank you cards, thank you posts on social media, saying it out loud a hundred, a thousand fold times, is my thank you enough? And the answer, church, is no. Because it's grace. It does not require that gratitude. Oh, but it inspires it. 
I will enter his courts with thanksgiving in my hearts. I will enter his courts with praise. It inspires that pattern of gratitude, but ultimately there's nothing I can do, nothing you can do, nothing we, the corporate we of the body of Christ, that can do to fully express the gratitude that we ought for the volume of love, grace, and redemption that is given to us in the next seven days. We are all a part of the crowd who on the one hand cheers the hero and says, pray save us. And those for whom a pattern of life and relationship with one another, with our world, and with God still requires the crucifixion and the redemption. I can't thank you enough. I simply can't. But when then can we do? Well, we take each sacred moment in the way that we will now in communion. And to live our lives in such a way that we might be able to say for the brokenness of our world, for the heart's cry about those lost in suffering, in tragedy, in acts of violence. When is enough enough? I'm not entirely sure, but I know that there is one who breaks bread with and for me and says, this is my body which is given for you. And that I can do that in remembrance of him. That there is one who would take the cup and say, this is blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so too can I then live poured out in a way that says, yes. I can't thank you enough. But with every breath, with every act, with every word of praise upon my lips and in my heart, I will do my best to live as you've called and equipped me to be. Would you join me in a moment of prayer?